Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and get started now. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Sensibly Loud Radio. I am B-Easy, and I'm joined today by Mountain Carl. Carl, how's it going? It's going really well. Just been uh, trying to figure out what streaming services should get my money now that Disney Plus has erupted onto the scene. And uh, recently, we decided to take the plunge. Pretty happy about that. We were able to watch The Mandalorian last night in its entirety so well i have the first two chapters that have been released so more on that later but uh, how are things going with you i heard that you were having some uh, red dead redemption woes with your pc <laughs> yeah so rockstar released red dead redemption 2 uh pretty recently uh, i think it was like uh beginning of the month and since i got it i've been having some stuttering issues every now and then uh, I have a pretty robust PC. I've got a, for all you nerds out there, I have a EVGA uh, NVIDIA 1080 Ti graphics card, which I got a, a few years ago for uh, a lot of money, and it's been a beast. But at the same time, the gaming rig that I put together, which I thought was really good, um, I kind of went with the wrong processor at the time. At least at the time, it made sense because I had a 1080p monitor, but now I have this ultra-wide 11, you know, uh, 1440p uh, Acer Predator monitor, which has been fantastic, uh, for like the last year. And my, my core I five that I have, it's been bottlenecking at times. And especially with this game, uh, cause this game, there is no sort of like videos that are safe for cutscenes. It's all generating and animating things on the fly, the entire game. Uh, so with that, you have some pros and cons, especially when you have a processor like mine, um, it's kind of limited compared to having like a an Intel i7. So I went ahead and pulled the trigger. I was looking at maybe I should get a new motherboard and, and go with AMD or, you know, um, you know, get a new motherboard or maybe a newer Intel uh, processor because the motherboard I have uh, limits me to just the seventh generation processors. But the Intel uh, 7, i7 7700K uh, 7, is still really, really good and robust. Um, and it'll be good enough for me for now at least for another year or two, especially help with like the streams with social uh, media that we do with Sensibly Loud Media. Um, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but I just kind of figured, you know, getting a new motherboard and everything else would cost a lot more money. So, but Rockstar admitted that they had some issues with the game, and that's usually how it is with most games now. The unfortunate thing is, you know, it used to be where a lot of major games would come out on the PC platform before console. And now it's the other way around because, you know, more people are on console than PC. I think it's starting to uh, equal out a little bit in terms of interest of PC users. But, uh, yeah, it's 
it's getting to the point where, um, you know, all these new games are on console and then they port over to PC. So you're bound to have some issues and then some patches that come out from that. So, yeah, I think that uh, when you're looking at the market in general and, and so many people are adopting consoles to actually go and play these games, that it makes sense that PC game or PC versions of the games are getting released later and later, right? Because they're not they're, they're not an afterthought. I don't want to make it sound like that. Obviously, when you have a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, which more or less is about one of the very few double a story driven single player games that are out there right now uh you have to know the hardware requirements that you're working with and i think that's the thing that's always scared people away from pc gaming in general is because i can run out and i can get sounds outrageous now but like a 500 hundred dollar console right and that 500 hundred dollar console may not be moving at like the blistering speed that a high dollar pc PC is, but really to be able to crank out the true performance that you're going for in these PC games, you have to be willing to invest four times that. And it, it makes sense from a business perspective, if you're going to keep that up to date and that's something that you want to do, right? It, but most PCs that people create these days are love letters to making a PC. As we've discovered, you and me and JMac you know, we have all been talking about how oh, we're going to build this year and that kind of thing. And then, uh, lo and behold, I was about to pull the trigger on all my components. And then this refurb unit came out. It was exactly what I was looking for at $200 less mm -hmm. than what it would cost me to put something together. And I think that's, that's kind of where we're at these days where you can invest that kind of money if you want to, because the love is in the build, right? And knowing every component that's going into it, but it's a personal thing now because the actual cost structure and the way things are these days, it doesn't buy you uh, a huge amount mm -hmm. to go build your own. And, and obviously like there, the question is what's your time worth and that kind of thing. So all that is to say, the game consoles that are out there right now are everybody's got a development unit, right? Yeah. That, you know, all these, all these companies have a development unit. And so they always crank out these games to very specific uh, specifications. And what you get is pretty much a benchmark thing where you know exactly what the capabilities of the system are. Whereas if you're making for a PC, you're always building for that next generation. And I think that's the issue we're running into now is, you know, you got games that are, you know, high horsepower stuff like Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, I think Anthem had issues like that as well. And just, you know, random random stuff here and there. Not like the free-to-play stuff that's the microtransaction things and that kind of deal. Those are pretty much built to run on everything. But uh, a lot of the 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 double-A titles that are out there that are – or is it double-A or triple-A? I forget my, my – my You might as well speak. just say triple-A, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at this point. Uh, quintuple A games that are out there that are uh, they're screaming performance wise. I think that's pretty much a guarantee that you're going to have hiccups when you release it because you're pretty much releasing it for the next generation of computer to run it. So anyway, I totally understand that. Um, yeah, I've loved uh, running my recent rig and everything, but I think that the funny thing is, and this is Mountain Girlfriend will look at me like an idiot. I'll spend all this money on you know uh, a console or 
a PC, right? And the first thing I do is download like Mega Man Anniversary Collection or something like that. So I'm like, I'm buying something that probably, you know, needs like the power of a Raspberry Pi to yeah. run correctly. Right. And yet I'm like cranking it out on, you know, this Xbox One X or something like that. So it's it's ludicrous. But either way, um, it's it's always fun uh you can't you can't escape it so what i can have you know 400 million copies of my uh my mega man anniversary collection on my super duper machine um no it's it's been good i understand that people are having issues right now with with the game but i mean you said they patched it or working past it yeah and this is this kind of goes back to the whole dilemma that <clears throat> A lot of gamers have, whether you're on console or PC, in that you know a major, really big title's coming out. You you see preview videos for it, images, descriptions, and you get super excited for it, just like if a brand new movie's coming out that you just cannot wait to see. And the dilemma is basically, okay, if you pre-order this package or if you pre-order the ultimate package, you get this, this, and this plus this, and you know so many bonus things, and it costs you so much more money. Well, you do it, and then you get it the day that it's available, and you end up having issues, and that's typically what it is with PC games. So yep. it's it's always a safer bet to wait a month. Um, let's just say I was too excited for this game to wait a month, and yep. I knew that there might be issues, but I didn't know it was going to be like this, and it was right. almost unplayable. So I, you know, for the meantime, I have gone through the story and I've reached chapter two in the story and it's, it's a hell of a game. It's really, really detailed. I mean, so, so much detailed that it's set in the old West where it's like the 1880s or 1890s and you're with a, a gang, like a, a posse and, but you have a, a group of people that are following you, like, like women, children, things like that. So you're having to very much look after, after your own and, um, but you have to take care of yourself too. You have to shave, you have to bathe yourself. If you don't like, you know, like you, you're, you don't have the same stamina, uh, you got to feed yourself, hunt, um, go out hunting and kill some deer. And then you got to skin the deer and you got, I mean, you can sell the pelts, you know, there's just so many, there's so much detail to it. And I yeah. played the original red then. I don't remember it being quite as detailed as it is so it has been great and basically to help my performance i've been overclocking my processor pretty heavily because i have a really good all-in-one core made by corsair but uh again it's still not enough so yeah after we're, re we're done recording today i'm gonna be swapping out that processor because that i7 just arrived so i cannot wait i think it's funny when you talk about patching stuff and, and buying it the day it comes out and everything and mm -hmm. like a lot of a lot of PC games have experienced where like a situation where they come out and they release it. And yeah, obviously like Red Dead, you know, it was like you said, it was basically unplayable, but they got it working. Uh, but they didn't really adjust the content of the game mm -hmm. when they released it. And a lot of multiplayer games like uh, uh, Modern Warfare and that kind of thing, uh, they'll go out and they'll, they'll release patches to massage some of the balancing of the weapons and that kind of thing. But there are games out there like No Man's Sky mm -hmm. that when people jumped out there and they bought it, they were like, wow, I was promised the like the moon. You know, like everything was supposed to be basically uh, done. It was supposed to be this incredible game that was incredibly well fleshed out. 
And it was basically like one like quarter or one eighth of the game they promised. And then now I'm seeing a lot of advertisements and kind of like a big PR push from the company that released that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, hey, by the way, we, we know we screwed up and we also released like four entire game packages for free. And it's supposed to be a completely different game now. Now, this is not my endorsement of No Man's Sky. I don't want people to run out and buy it and be like, wow, it's finally a good game now. I'm just saying that as far as the structure of how things roll out on PC versus how they roll out on console and stuff like that, that uh, it seems like if they need to rush development and that kind of thing, they trust that you have an internet connection and that you can like unfuck your game yeah after you've already bought it which i don't think really was a thing for Mm -hmm. for a long time i mean especially not until the point where we had you know like an average in the city of like a hundred down kind of thing right it was like oh what you need to download the rest of your game that you already bought and you're pissed off about yeah just give it you know like a couple minutes so yeah compared to used to be you'd, you'd yeah have to wait all day even if you had dsl back in the day it's like okay well Maybe by tonight I can play it. <laughs> I went, uh, speaking of dial-up, this is a random anecdote, but I thought most dial-up was dead. I know that it exists like for credit card servers and stuff like that, but I actually went uh, a few years ago to to get like, uh, I don't know, some hair goop or something from uh, the salon thing in Walmart because I was there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to walked, do that. Walked in there and, uh, and grabbed it, and I said, okay, I'll check out over here. And they're like, no, 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 we'll check you out right here. Okay. So I walk up and I, I hand him my credit card and she swipes it and all of a sudden I hear <laughs> I was like, what the what the hell is going on? And I looked at her and I was like, is that like a joke? You know, like does it just make that noise? Like, does somebody make it make that noise? And she was like, No, it's 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 just, you know, sending your information right now. And I was like, Okay like dial up actually is still used like at an enterprise level. And I understand that because you can be in the middle of nowhere. Like I work, I work pretty far away from the city. Yeah. So I I understand that like sometimes the best internet connection you can get is (coughs) basically dial up, but it's uh, it was very surprising to me to hear that happen. So I, I don't know strange strange life let's talk movies i want to hear about what you have seen lately since i we have we have done a lot of uh show and movie watching recently but you more so than me so let's talk about dr sleep because this is a movie that i've been anticipating and especially ewan mcgregor's actual performance that was supposed to be very good yeah, uh, I've been really anticipating this movie. It was definitely on the the top of my list for November releases, uh, and it releases all year. Uh, after especially after seeing the the teaser trailer and all the trailers, so went and checked this out last Sunday after we recorded the last episode. Um, and yeah, it was really really great. It was pretty amazing. It's one of those movies that. One of the movies that I've seen this year that's actually kind of stuck with me more so than other films you know like i've heard a lot of people that went and saw the lighthouse say it's stuck with them and they've talked about it and they've thought about it and yeah that stuck with me a little bit but this movie has a lot more staying power and i definitely cannot wait to see this again because there's a lot of details into it and again this was uh, 
directed, written, and edited by Mike Flanagan. Um, and this guy is really showing his staying power, his talent, his uh, execution, and his ability to just have like a greater vision in terms of uh, staying along the same lines of you know ad- the adaptation of Stephen King's novel, and also staying true to The Shining. So it's a very slippery slope for any director to come in and, and do something like that, especially a sequel to such a great novel as The Shining, as well as the film, which was by one of the greatest directors of all time, you could say, which is Stanley Kubrick. Maybe right. not everybody's cup of tea, but I think everybody can appreciate what Kubrick has done, whether it's Full Metal Jacket or 2001 Space Odyssey or, you know, the list goes on and on. So The reason has... that a lot of people say, like, oh, well, you can't really just say that we've gone there. Like, that's, like, cinematically, that's not enough anymore is because Stanley Kubrick did that you know, he went there before other people went there. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a lot of, um, now because of what he's done, people can be like, Oh, that's so derivative or whatever, or like how, how very Kubrick of him. And it's just kind of like, yeah, that dude actually did a lot of really strange and interesting stuff. And he was a great director. And yeah, a lot of the stuff he made was batshit crazy, but, uh, and, and even Stephen King, I think didn't necessarily love the adaptation of the shining, which that's, fine i mean like the shining stands up on its own right but uh the movie i mean but yeah uh, that's i think that's a lot of what uh what you have to follow is you know he clearly mike flanagan didn't go out and say i want to be stanley kubrick for a day mm-hmm. right i mean yeah. like it was a, it was a completely his own thing yeah it was very much his own thing and and uh i think he's proven himself to to get that director's chair for this film as well as you know, he helped write this thing. So yep. in, in, in writing this storyboard and, and getting everything executed and getting the right cast and all that stuff, I mean, getting the studio to, to even let him do it, uh, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. It's in his track record of House on Haunting Hill, uh, Hush. Uh, you know, he's done so many other projects as well. Uh, he's got a lot of really great writing um you know, credits to his, uh, his list as well. So, you know, he's really proven himself to be, you know, this is the guy that we want for this, this project. Um, and you know, Dr. Sleep, the, the sequential, you know, the sequel novel, uh, came out in 98 and it had been so many years since the shining was written. I think we might've discussed this on an earlier episode, but basically, yeah, you know, he kind of, uh, Stephen King kind of got the idea from, you know, a meet and greet with a fan and was kind of like, you know, what would Andy be like these days? You know, nowadays, what would he be doing with his life? And he started thinking about it and he's like, or not Andy, but, uh, Dan Torrance, you know, what would Danny be doing? So he started thinking about it. I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. And then it was enough to kind of come up with, you know, this own story that stands on its own merit so I feel like that, you know, Flanagan did a, a amazing job in terms of tying in the original Shining um, and then, you know, definitely honoring that. But having, you know, the the benefits and, and the, the greatest parts of Dr. Sleep and having it stand on its own two legs for movie viewers, because that's always the tricky thing of taking a novel, but adapting it to the screen and getting to where it makes sense cohesively for an audience. So it's not just long and drawn out like in a book sometimes can be. But as far as the casting goes, Ewan McGregor, probably one of the best roles I've seen him in in a long time. Um, The beginning of the movie is really great because it doesn't just launch you straight into, 
now you're in the haunted house situation. It does a lot of the same stuff that Haunting Hill House did, which is why I like that so much, is that it built up so much character development. And yeah. it starts off and you see Danny and he's got PTSD and he's still dealing with, you know, those things are still going bump in the night for him every now and then. But he's learned a way to kind of control it and lock them away in a box in his mind to where he doesn't have to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that, he struggled with alcoholism and drug use and stuff like that. And then finally, he's just kind of had enough and he's a drifter and he ends up in town and this guy kind of takes him in, goes to, you know, an AA meeting, gets sober and then he's sober. And then he's living in this town that he randomly drifted to and he's started working an honest job and working in a, um, in a nursing home, uh, basically retirement center. And so that's where he comes up. That's where he gets his nickname, Dr. Sleep. I always wondered, like, why is it called Dr. Sleep? Well, he's like the janitor there, and there's this cat that roams the hallways. Well, the cat will go into a certain room at first, and he's like, you know, you can't be in there. And he'll go in there at the cat, and the cat's already on the bed, laying at the foot of the bed of an old person. And he's like, he's like, sorry, you know, I don't know why cat. And he's like, no, it's okay. The cat, from what I've heard, the story goes, the cat goes in when it knows it's your time. And then the, the old person's really like, you know, as we, I'm sure we all will be one day, you know, is very nervous about, you know, very scared about passing away and is needing some sort of calm. So he's like, no, 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 you're the doctor, right? And he's like, no, I just work as a janitor. He's like, no, no, you're. I'll, your doctor sleep. You're going to help me sleep, you know? And so to get him to calm down, what he did was he basically did his shine where he speaks to him in his head and he can recall, he can read his mind and recall events and memories when he was younger and they start singing a song together and, you know, kind of soothes him. So he kind of becomes, it becomes cathartic for him to kind of use his abilities for good to help others in terms of passing on. And so, Eventually, things uh, start going crazy because there's a little girl that has a shining ability that's even stronger than his, and it's probably like one of the strongest in the world. And she ends up sort of finding him somewhere somewhere through the nether, and they're communicating back and forth on this chalkboard on the wall. And then she's starting to speak to him in his mind. Eventually, she tracks him down because she sees something that she shouldn't see, and that's where this group comes into play and that's where Rose the hat, which is played by Rebecca Ferguson, probably one of the best roles I've seen her do. She's an excellent actress. You probably know from the mission possible films Yeah, very and good. yeah, uh, great up and coming actress. Um, I, I look forward to seeing her more things, but she basically is a, with this cult group and they basically prey upon people with this sort of shine ability. Um, it, whether they know that they have it or they don't, and um, any time that that person is is sensing fear or they're dying, they're breathing out sort of like this, you know, in their breath, like this, this, this shine ability. They're able to breathe it in, and that's what helps them sustain their life. They're almost kind of like vampires in a way, in that they're actually dead, but they're just feeding upon this. So they have canisters of stuff because they've killed people and have taken you know, their breath and it's all within it. So then they breathe it in and it, it gives them longevity. And some people, some of the, the group, there was this one old guy who'd been around since like the Roman empire or something. So it was very much like vampires in a way. So they, 
the the little girl kind of sees something that happens. I don't want to spoil it too much um, that she shouldn't have, and then calls upon uh, Dan Torrance to help her out. And so that's where it starts going because then they notice this little girl and they try to go after her and and it comes down to is he just going to continue his life because now he, he doesn't have to deal with that stuff or is he going to help her? And that's where it starts to get crazy. So uh, awesome. there there is a lot of flashback scenes going back to like the original Overlook Hotel. Um, and I was curious of what they were going to do, if it was going to be de-aging technology or if they were just going to show the original scenes. But, you know, I I think we all saw it in the trailer where it's little Danny Torrance riding on his little his tricycle thing down the hallway and you could tell that that was that was a newly shot thing and they just got a kid that looked just like him um so what they ended up doing is for you know his his dad which was played by jack nicholson and the mother um they were just recast as people that kind of looked like them and i thought that that was a really good move because the de-aging process to me anyways i think would have taken me out of the film and yeah. so, you know, this, the actor that, that played the dad, um, was played by, um, uh, looking it up here. The dad was played by Henry Thomas. And so Henry Thomas is basically, you know, the actor that we all know as Elliot from ET. He also played the father in Haunting a Hill House. So I thought that that was pretty interesting because he, he kind of looked like him. And he does show up in like one scene um, because as you see in the trailer, it's not a, a spoiler. He does return to Overlook Hotel and yeah. it's pretty much left the way it was a little bit. And the mother, I, the actress that played the mother, I thought did a, a really good job. I never seen her before, but she almost looked just like the original uh, actress. And so, yeah, that was uh, that was really interesting to see. But yeah. Uh, I would just, you know, just to wrap it up, I thought it was an excellent movie. It had a really great climax. Uh, didn't really drag at any time. It, it kept me going. And even the little girl, the actress that, that played the little girl in the movie, um, I think that was uh, Kylie Kieran is, is her name. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I thought, you know, initially I thought, okay, she's going to be annoying me throughout. And she wasn't annoying. She actually did a really good job uh, with acting. So, yeah, definitely recommend everybody check it out. I'm de- definitely going to give this movie an A. Awesome. The uh, I think we talked about it a little bit before, but Ewan McGregor as an actor is in his projects so hit or miss. And I think that in a lot of the stuff that you've seen him in where he cares mm-hmm. about the product, he's exceptional. Um, and, and that means, I mean, that's in a lot of stuff. That's, that's the stuff that he doesn't even, I mean, you wouldn't expect him to be in. I, I don't think Moulin Rouge was especially a good movie, but I think that he did, he acted hard in that movie. And, and I think that he finds some projects that he really connects with that he wants to be a part of in, in those movies seem to be very good for him versus stuff that seemed more like a paycheck, which I would say like, I don't know. And maybe people will disagree with this, but the Island, you know, I, I would say like that, that whole movie just seemed like, Hey, like you and McGregor, you're a good actor. What are you doing? Trying to make this Michael Bay vehicle work. And uh, it's, it was okay. But I mean, well, the, there was, 
there were aspects to that movie, like, you know, like, because he, in that film, which, you know, spoiler, but whatever, it's been out long enough. It's uh, been a long time. You know, he was a clone. And yes. so you see the original guy who is pretty much has the same accent as him, but he plays a clone with an American accent. So I could see where that was kind of appealing as far as an, an actor's perspective, where it's like, oh, yeah. I get to play two versions of myself at mm-hmm. some point. So, yeah, I could see that. But, yeah, you know, Michael Bay and, yeah, maybe he was looking for a paycheck. And perhaps. Okay, so let me, let me back it off a little bit more, and I'll say, like, the movie uh, Haywire. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... And, and so, okay, of course, you could take the island, which he did have to use some of his acting chops. Um, Haywire uh, seemed like he was phoning it in the whole time. Yeah, um, I agree with and, you there. And, and that's that's fine, because I think a lot of that has to do with the writing and then the directing, because you may or may not like that director. But um, in in general, I think that he does a very good job with the stuff that he feels connected to. Yeah. Um, I will I will also say I can't really read him, and I think that you may actually have some insight on this. I can't really read him when it comes to the Star Wars stuff, right? So I, I get the sense when he's on stuff like Graham Norton and things like that where he goes, oh, you know what? Star Wars sucks. Like, I don't remember anything about that. That was garbage. And then he's talking about how he can't wait to get back into, you know, the shoes of Obi-Wan Kenobi and like doing this Disney Plus series that they're talking about coming out with and stuff like that. And how he had to keep it quiet for so long Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how he's really invested. And I'm trying to think like, what, what part of this is real like i get like ewan mcgregor has kind of like this bad boy thing that he's always had right like you sometimes you see it in kind of like the train spotting way and then sometimes Mm -hmm. you you know don't really think about it because you're so used to him talking about you know medic florians and shit like that and then you're like oh okay well like he's he's just kind of like some really smoothed out you know decent actor that you know just kind of making his buck but um I can't decide where he is on Star Wars. Like, does he care about it? Does he not care about it? He doesn't exactly act his ass off in Star Wars films, right? But he does a good job. So, I mean, I I don't necessarily think that he doesn't like it, but the the fact that he said some stuff, kind of like the way that Daniel Craig was like, I'd rather slip my wrist than go back and play Bond. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's not, again... I think I've said that I wouldn't see it because that is bullshit. I will see it. But the thing is, I don't, I don't necessarily know how much they actually enjoy being parts of these large blockbuster movies. Right. And, and, and if he actually enjoyed doing it or not, because we've got all we have is here today, you know, and, uh, and then obviously like the, from the, from the horse's mouth talking about, you know, how he wants to be part of it, how he doesn't want to be a part of it. And then, um, you know, how much of that is marketing on his, you know, like, because again, people don't want to go see a movie necessarily that someone just like absolutely blasts right before it comes out. So I don't know. Um, I'm still trying to figure that part out. And I don't know if you knew anything about that or not, but I don't, but I, I do know that, you know, he's done a bunch of different things in years past. Like he, he was in Fargo, uh, I believe yep. that was season three. Um, 
and you know he played uh, basically twin brothers. You know, one was rich, and the other one was basically a probation officer who was you know pretty rough. And uh, so he's done some indie type stuff as well. And uh, but yeah, he's and then of course Train Spotting too. So it, it could have been maybe at the time. I don't know when that quote was. Maybe it was a few years ago. And if it was a few years ago, it's probably because maybe they were in talks to do to bring him back or to have a series or something. And, and it was maybe falling through at that point And he was just right. like fed up with it. Or maybe he made that comment because he doesn't like the current star Wars films, which I can partially agree with them on because the last one was just like, it's just, there's, there's too much Disney in it is my, yeah. my problem. Like there's not enough edginess to it. And I feel like there was a lot of, edginess when it came to you know the original three films you know maybe not so much the first one but especially like empire strikes back return of the jedi there was a lot of edge to it whereas now it's like you kind of have that but there, it just doesn't feel raw anymore it just feels like you know it you know, it it gets a little too political at times and as well as the mouse comes into play and it was like you know, oh boy, everybody has a chance. You know, it's like, like, <laughs> like get out of here, man. Like, just I want to see an R-rated Star Wars. Like, that's that's what. I'm, but we'll get to that here in a little yeah, bit. As I was say, speaking of R-rated Star Wars, yeah, we, we we talk about Mandalorian later. We'll 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 definitely bring yeah, that up. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll touch on that. I I didn't know if that was a good good point to make or not. But uh, yeah, you also saw Midway, which is probably one of the most star-studded films to come out in a while. Uh, from my boy, Roland Emmerich. So (laughs) we discussed this before, but I believe like, I think Roland Emmerich is a, is a, uh, I think he's a naturalized citizen. Uh, I don't, I don't really know what his, his status is there, but I know Mm -hmm. that he, he lives in America now. I believe he was born in Germany and started this filmmaking career in Germany. And some of the most patriotic movies that have come out of like the late nineties, early two thousands in general, uh, like Patriot for one, mm-hmm. um, independence day, uh, they were all created by this German guy. Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, I, of course, I think that's funny, you know, but, uh, kind of more interesting than haha funny, but he comes out with this movie midway, which, um, I was never, completely sold on regardless of the insanely good cast because Mm -hmm. i because of roland emmerich's kind of like super duper hit or miss yeah uh, mostly miss recently unfortunately (laughs) um you know stuff that he had done but i mean i I just go okay i'm just gonna run down this this cast real quick yep um you say ed's ed screen how do you say his name yeah ed screen yeah he was the bad guy in the first deadpool he was uh what was that character's name? Um, Francis. Francis, yeah. Yeah, and and also his name in this movie, uh, which I know thanks to IMDb, is Dick Best, which, by the way, uh, if you're looking for names for your kid, that's a good one. Um, which is actually Patrick, a true character, which I'll get into that. Here. No, yeah, no, I'm, I think uh, all of these guys were... Yeah. Or historical, you know, historical characters, if not historically accurate characters. But uh, Patrick Wilson... Um, who you may or may not have a love-hate relationship with, uh, Woody Harrelson, Luke Evans, Mandy Moore. Um, uh, I don't know this guy. I don't, maybe I don't. Luke Kleintank. 
he he was the uh the basically the double agent spy in Man in the High Castle. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's so has has acting chops. Yep, he does. Um, Dennis Quaid, Aaron Eckhart. Um, let's see. Oh, Nick Jonas. There yep. we go. That's that's the mustache that I recognized from all the trailers. Yeah, and clearly I'm trying to emulate that now. The pencil. Nobody's mustache. actually. Yeah, every, <laughs> nobody's actually asked me if I was trying to grow a, a Nick Jonas mustache. They've all asked me if I've been growing a Gardner Minshew mustache. Yeah. So, this is uh, the the question is who wore it better, and the answer is clearly me. All right. So, the uh, the midway. Uh, movie that came out here. What did you think about the acting? First of all, with all of this, when you have this many actors in one movie, uh, I got I got two questions. There's a follow up to this, but okay. what did you think about the acting in general? The acting in general, I thought was fine. Um, I felt like there were some actors that were better than others. Uh, you know, Woody Harrelson always knocks it out of the park, no matter Correct. what he's in. Uh, Dennis Quaid, of course, he's he's a badass. He can always be himself. But you know, the the one actor I wish had more scenes in was uh, Aaron Eckhart, and of right. course, he played Jimmy Doolittle. Which Doolittle, basically, you know, to kind of recap, uh, and I I like military, you know, historical movies and stuff like that. But Doolittle was basically the one that launched the the first bombing run uh, on Tokyo right after Pearl Harbor and it yeah, was the eponymous Doolittle raid. Yeah. Right? And it was, it was so risky and, and gutsy because they only had enough gas to fly out there and bomb. And then they ran out of gas and then they were in China and they had to try and find a way back. And so the Japanese at the time were, you know, bombing the Chinese just for no reason, just to kill the people. And so you see the Chinese helping him escape and, and get back to America and stuff because they're like, oh, you bombed Japan. And when they find that out, they lower their guns and they just want to shake his hand, you know, nice. and they're like, OK, yeah, he's cool. But Aaron Eckhart, you know, it's like the one thing, too, with military movies is the salute. A lot of times when you do a, a salute, you know, you want to basically have your your index finger just inches away from your brow. There's so many times where they're just, they're just like, yeah, whatever, you know, and and you see that even with like Dennis Quaid. Uh, but Aaron Eckhart had probably the stiffest salute and was more, uh, you know, in character. And he just has that intensity. I mean, come on. I mean, this is the same guy that was Harvey Dent and Two-Face in The Dark Knight. Everybody yeah. knows this guy's a great actor as well as Thank You for Smoking. That was probably the <laughs> first thing I saw him in. And uh, yep. great movie. Um, I, I think uh, Thank You for Smoking may be one of the better screenwriting uh, of that that's late of movies that came out at that time yeah. i remember looking at that and saying that was a tightly written movie it like, was. That was it was a well done movie it was a good good satire and, and things like that but um i will i will mention real quickly before we get back to the review mm -hmm. that i purchased thank you for smoking like a a good law-abiding citizen and um and my dvd copy that i have is the second worst cut dvd really? i have ever seen in my life and and it all stems from the very end so there's a perspective issue right so you have the very end of the movie where it's it's this big um kind of send-off joke that's a visual gag where you have everybody meeting and then it's just like they show all the different um all the different symbols of the um oh my god what does he do uh sorry i'm trying to remember the actual name for it but uh Talking about the anyway, donut shop? No, I'm, I'm trying. Anyway, the the bottom line is 
um, he's trying all the different people that are, uh, you know, trying to, uh, to solicit the government on this, that, or the other. Oh, right. 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 Yeah. And so that you know, you'll see like, Oh, the lobbyists, I'm sorry. Good Lord. Wow. I just had a stroke. So yes, he's a lobbyist. <laughs> Everybody's a lobbyist. And, uh, and you see like the things that pop up at the very bottom of the screen. The gag is like, it's, you know, cigarette lobby, gun lobby, all, all this kind of stuff. Right. In my cut of the DVD, three quarters of those things that pop up are lopped off at the bottom of the screen. And it's not a perspective issue. It's just the way they actually trimmed oh, wow. the, the original source material to fit. And it's not, this isn't like a four, three kind of thing. It's hmm. a widescreen DVD. Yeah. And, and I'm like trying to like shrink it and make it fit and like all kinds of stuff. And the entire thing is just botched from the ground up. And I, and, and so uh, real quickly, I've only had two other DVDs that were a massive mistake when it comes to printing them. Mm-hmm. And they were both Sylvester Stallone DVDs. So one of them was, uh, I think it was Demolition Man. Okay. Right? And, and Sam Bino can tell you all about this because I had a combo movie of Demolition Man and Over the Top. Oh, nice. Right? Yeah. And and I was like, well, this is well, this is money. Right. You know, it was like one of those Walmart specials. But my lord, is it great! And uh, you put it in there, and you cannot get Demolition Man to play without the actual director commentary overlay wow that's weird yes it is it is a uh, it is a fault in the actual printing of the dvd i have tried every way to turn it off and every single time you insert over the top plays fine mm-hmm. but uh but i had to get another copy of demolition man because uh, it's one of my favorite stallone movies but yeah the, definitely better than over the top <laughs> oh over over the top <laughs> uh if uh if you don't play the entire or if you don't watch the entire movie wanting to hit that kid in the face yeah um you're not you're not watching it correctly but uh but yeah there's that it did uh and then the other one was uh judge dread oh, which yeah, is yeah. not not dread which is as far as action movies go mm-hmm. pretty exceptional mm-hmm. um not the carl urban one but uh so judge dread the original was like rob schneider and sandra and just like Yes, and yeah. Well, uh, no. So that Sandra Bullock was uh, Demolition Man. Was she? But yeah, yeah. That was the you know, uh, yeah. That, that was definitely Demolition Man. I must be it, getting the, old. Yeah, you're you're an old man. You're having a stroke now. No, yeah, it's uh, maybe I am. Yeah, it's Judge. So Judge Dread was the original. Um, that's right. It was Diane Lane that was in that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So. And this is this actually uh, for a, for a movie that is such a throwaway, um, <laughs> it it actually had a lot of actors from the '90s in it. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Sylvester Stallone, Armand Asante. Yeah, that's my <laughs> that's my boy. He played uh, he played Rico. That guy's never played a good guy in any movie in his life. Oh, just check all of his credentials in the '80s. It's ridiculous. It's incredible. Uh, Rob Schneider. Um, and then, okay, so the big the big one that like blew my mind, besides Diane Lane, obviously, Max von Sydow, mm-hmm. who is uh, is at once in some of the most important science fiction movies of our generation, and then also some of the absolute worst. He yeah. is actually the bad guy in uh, Flash Gordon, the movie. Mm. If you didn't know that, mm. so uh, I won't call that the worst. It's actually pretty amazing that you know 
it's it's a low point for him yeah the, the point is is this judge dread movie that i bought on dvd uh, and this is another sambino favorite has um has an issue with the mixing on mm-hmm. the sound and the dialogue is at whisper levels but all the explosions and gunshots are at like peak blow your speakers out levels <laughs> So between like it, we had we had great times we had drinking games to this movie and we yeah. had all kinds of stuff you yeah. know but like we turned it on and uh, and we would like crank it up while they were talking you know and and it would actually like it would be deafening when like everything kicked on I mean it was insanity and it's the same thing kind of like if you ever watched the FX network back in the early two thousands where they had a big issue with the and the um, advertisements mm-hmm. being so much louder. Oh the yeah, TV yeah. Shows right, and yep. so everybody complained about it. And they got it fixed, mm-hmm. but it's that kind of thing where you're like, you have to mute it at certain parts and stuff like that because you literally can't hit ha- like the TV or the sound system can't handle the kind of mixing that they've produced. So anyway, it was uh, it was a disaster. Hmm. However, uh, I have talked a lot about movies that are not, not Midway, <laughs> and we should talk more about Midway. That's all good. Um, it's always good to go down a trip down memory lane, uh, especially exactly. when memories of DVDs. Um, yeah, DVDs. Yeah, yes. progressive those, scan, those all that fun stuff. Progressive scan, yeah. baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So did everybody get enough time? in this movie besides yeah. Aaron Eckhart. Yeah. I feel like everybody got enough time. I mean, I can see why Aaron Eckhart, um, didn't have a whole lot of time in it. Um, and some of that too is because, you know, the battle of Midway, right? So the battle of Midway to recap, it's, you know, the Japanese needed to take an Island that would have been a, a good stronghold to gather up all the resources and then wipe out and, and take over Hawaii, which then would have led to taking over the Pacific, um, and then, you know, going on towards Seattle and San Francisco and, you know, man in the high tower type stuff, right. That could have been an alternative thing. And the Japanese at the time had, uh, the better technology, they had better planes, they had better ships. Uh, it was just a, a fact. And, you know, I think the Japanese have always been ahead of us with, when it comes to technology, you know, even after the uh, two atomic bombs we dropped, right. And, uh, and losing in world war two, but it's uh, but yeah, you know, they had to make enough time for the battle of Midway itself, and so basically, the information is intercepted that there's intelligence that, um, that they may be going towards Midway, and it could be at this day at this time. So they went ahead and and rolled the dice, and you know, uh, the character is played by Patrick Wilson. He's like the intelligence guy. And really smart. And I was pretty surprised at the beginning of this film, you know, going into this film, like seeing the trailer for it, I didn't really have a lot of excitement for it, but I knew that my dad would want to go because we're into, you know, military history movies and stuff. And it looked like a lot more green screen and everything seemed a a little bit brighter than it should be and not grim and dark, kind of like Saving Private Ryan. And that's probably the one complaint I have of the film is, yeah, it did feel like a bit glossy or you know, a bit more CGI, but I will say this, you know, even though this was Lionsgate that, that put this out, this movie did get a lot of money in their budget. And the main reason for that is Roland Emmerich because of Independence Day. Uh, I'm not going to count Independence Day resurgence because that pile of garbage was uh, was the one movie I think I, I definitely should have walked out on in the theater, but um, you know, so going into it, I wasn't really all that 
interested. I did see the original Midway, which came out in 1976, would have which had Charlton Heston and um, you know everybody, just a whole like who's who gamut of actors back in the day, and it was really good for the time being because. It, what it did is it showed both perspectives of the Americans and then showed the Japanese and what's going on with them, how they're strategizing. And I really like that dynamic rather than it just being all gung ho, we're America and we did this and who cares about them and they're inferior. You know, it really shows that there's a lot of strategy and chess moves. And I feel like that this modern remake of it did a good job with that. Um, and because even from the get go, it's like, okay, like they're speaking Japanese and there's subtitles. It's not one of those where they're like speaking English with an accent. You know, I, I can't yeah. stand that stuff. And in the beginning, Patrick Wilson's character is actually talking to someone from Japan and Patrick Wilson himself is speaking in Japanese. Cool. And, I w- and not just like a few lines, like a whole conversation. I was pretty blown away by that. So yeah, there's a lot of historical things, a lot of detail in it. Um, and, you know, it, leading up to the the battle itself I, they actually showed the bombing of pearl harbor in the beginning which i didn't know they were going to do and they probably spent a little too much time on it but the the graphics and you know getting back to that the special effects was pretty amazing i mean looking at these planes and seeing the flaps open whenever they're diving compared to not diving the flaps are closed and you know and the perspective that the pilot sees when they're doing a dive bomb run and you just see like just tracer rounds flying at you like the the sound was excellent in it so there was a lot of really good things in it but there was a lot of of course uh over dramatization of things you know it was like okay like this scene's taking too long and and this guy i understand he's scared don't want to go back up but why are they spending five minutes you know on this dude you know and and that is a a very roland emmerich thing to do but it's also a uh not unlike probably an old movie thing to do like i mean if you were going to try to recapture some of that true you know like you know one-on-one hey why isn't this guy doing that or that kind of thing like they explored a lot more uh motivation a little bit they lingered on stuff a little bit too long yeah Uh, the pacing was not as much of a concern in older movies and um and i can absolutely see where roland emmerich was like well let's re uh let's implement that let's take that kind of thing and it's just kind of like uh maybe maybe not but uh, I like the idea of them actually exploring intelligence and things like that and actual, like you said, chess moves and what happens. I mean, I suspect, do they do, they do any character building on the Japanese side? Is there any kind of like motivation stuff that they do? Yeah, you, you definitely see one of the guys that's in the Navy and he's actually, you know, um, talking with Patrick Wilson's character. And this is before the war, like probably four or five years before the war. And he's in Japan, he's in Tokyo, and he's talking to him. And you can tell, like, they respect each other. And they're almost, like, allies a little bit. And then you see later on, like, you know, this this guy is, you know, one of the admirals or something. He's in the Navy, and he doesn't agree with what his, his, you know, counterparts or what what his fellow other officers are are doing with this whole plan. Because it wasn't the original plan to go bomb Pearl Harbor, you know. It was Mm -hmm. to take out, like fuel tankers and and stuff like that so you know he has to go along with it because they're all about honor and tradition and there is a lot of things with honor and tradition that was in the original midway that is carried with this where it's kind of like you know if you suffer defeat you know whoever is the um you know captain of the ship 
must go down with the ship if they're they're salvaging you. Like it's it's right. crazy stuff. But um, I will say that uh, yeah, they did a, a a really good job with everything. The music could have been better. Uh, you know, like I said, in terms of like how it looks, uh, you know, it, it was a little glossy. But as far as visual effects, it was really good. Um, acting wise, Ed Screen as the the lead protagonist was interesting because he's mm-hmm. usually like a nefarious, you know, antagonist type character in most of his films. Absolutely. And he had to pull off a, uh, you know, New York accent. I don't think he quite pulled it off, but uh, he basically was like the maverick of the bunch. He was the one like hitting the brakes and doing all the crazy maneuvers and stuff. And, you know, he basically portrayed uh, this real character, Dick Best. All these characters were real characters because the one thing I liked at the end of the movie in the credits, it shows the actor and then it freeze frames on their, their face. And then it shows the real person's uh, picture and it talks about, the medals they receive, what happened to them after the war, you know? So I, I like thought that. that was a nice honor for pretty much everybody in the movie. Um, but the, the surprises here that surprised me were yeah, as far as acting goes, you know, Patrick Wilson, I've always been a fan of, but I thought he did really, really great in this movie. And uh, Ed screen was okay, but I feel like what really surprised me was Mandy Moore being his wife and I didn't recognize her first because, you know, she's a bit older since, you know, her whole claim to fame, early 2000s. But being the wife and only have having limited screen time where she had to be, you know, tough and sort of like uh, like a firecracker at times. And then at other times she had to be, you know, very emotional and she really hit it out of the park. So I could see her being in other projects. I was very surprised with that. Um, and then Nick Jonas actually did a really good job, too. Um, awesome. playing this guy that had, had a lot of courage and everything. So yeah, I thought the cast was, was really well and, you know, Woody Harrelson doing his thing and yeah, I mean, it was, it was a good movie, but there were just parts of it where I was like, okay, this is a little too over dramatized, you know, and, um, a little too over dramatic. Uh, but yeah, I think overall I'd probably give it like a B minus C plus somewhere in there. What's the best thing that you've seen Patrick Wilson in? Um, the, the best thing I've seen him in, let me see here what he's been in. Wow. looks like he's going to be in Aquaman two and they're about to, they just wrap post-production on conjuring three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of figured he'd be in another conjuring movie. I kind of figured that and the Aquaman two thing doesn't surprise me at all because Orm is kind of a pretty big deal to Aquaman. Yeah. Um, but as far as like the, the weirdest movie he's been in was Hard Candy. I don't know if you ever saw that. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Uh, go look that one up, and then if you watch it, uh, it's just kind of a well, cringeworthy me, part. Actually gonna... It came out in 05. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember the previews for that. Yep. Oh, um, my God. But to me, I think the I, – I liked uh, Insidious. I liked him in that. Um and then, of course, you know, The Conjuring, um, thought he was good in that. I mean, he's been in a good amount of stuff. I mean, I forgot he was in Prometheus and yeah, um, all these other... Oh, yeah, that's right. He was uh, the Night Owl in Watchmen. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he... I mean, that's the funny thing is that he is definitely not typecast. I've never, I've never seen him in anything where I was like, oh, yeah, like, obviously, like, you would put... Patrick Wilson here like mm-hmm. he, he's he's a pretty versatile actor but 
it, it he's I think he's also one of the actors that probably uh, plays himself in a lot of stuff. Like he, he there's some that he stretches on, like obviously Orm and that kind of thing, but more of the more of the grounded, you know, horror movies and stuff like that. I yeah. don't think he steps super far out of his his comfort zone sometimes. But I don't I, know. I agree uh, with that. I can't I can't figure out exactly how I feel about him. Uh, I can figure out how I feel about Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Um, speaking of Audible, I actually believe that Patrick Wilson has done audiobooks. So oh, that wow. is pretty interesting. Yeah. Oh, he's got that um, voice for it. So he does have a voice for it. Yeah. That is, he does have a very, very good voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Andy Circus. Yeah. Andy Circus was just confirmed as being Alfred Pennyworth in the Batman. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before, so I'm not going to beat it to death, but I will say that I think it's a pretty interesting choice. It's a good choice. Um, he is, I think, probably the right age bracket to be Alfred in this film. Yeah, I, I think he's, he, you know, he's he's proven himself, like, of course, the motion capture, but, um, you know, even his voice acting ability, I mean, and even just acting in the flesh, like in uh, Black Panther, you know, and, and yep. being sort of like a nemesis type of character. I mean, he's got a lot of depth and, you know, I feel like he has a lot to bring into this character. I think it's definitely the right move. Yeah, I think it's a good choice. Of all the people that we've heard, um, maybe one of the more unsus- unexpected choices, mm-hmm. but a good choice nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something else that's up here on our board that we have to talk about, which is maybe the most important news of the day. <laughs> Nicolas Cage is making a movie about Nicolas Cage in which he plays Nicolas Cage. Yep. Uh, the movie is called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and I think that is the most Nicolas Cage title of a movie I've ever heard. Or uh, it could have been like How to Steal the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like my like the mem- Nicolas Cage's memoir. Yeah. Um, well, for, first I get into Eleanor, and then I, I blast Palm <laughs> Springs, and then I, I pick up the Declaration of Independence. Yep. <laughs> he crushed it. That's exactly right. Let yeah. me give you this rough summary because it is weirder than you ever thought possible. Yep. The character is desperate to get a role in a new Tarantino movie, which is probably about right. While also dealing with a strained relationship with his teenage daughter. I, I think he's got like 30 kids, so that doesn't surprise me. He also occasionally talks to an egotistical 1990s version of himself who rides him for making too many crappy movies and for not being a star anymore. Talk about the most self-aware premise I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Um, I think as a, so the one thing that I'm, I'm going to get caught up on here is it's going to be hard to de-age Nicolas Cage. And, And the reason why is because 1990s Nicolas Cage had less hair than current Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah, true. Like in Face Off. Yeah. I mean, like, you're, I don't know, you're going to have to work backwards, follically, trying to get him to have like long rocker hair currently. And he was basically bald. 
before. Yeah, right. So that will, uh, I, I'm very curious how they're going to handle that. I mean, the whole movie is about Nick Cage's ego. Yeah. Right. So that by itself makes me feel like he's going to have some pretty uh, drastic control over the actual finished product. Um, the, there's some, there are other stuff in here that we didn't actually get to. Apparently he goes to a Mexican drug cartels, mm -hmm. like a, a drug uh, cartel leaders uh, house in this movie, mm -hmm. like to do an appearance to make money because he's massively in debt, which again is way too close to home for Nicholas Cage. And um, in doing so, like the cartel leader is writing a script, but the script seems eerily similar to what is actually transpiring at that moment. And then also his wife and his daughter, uh, or his ex-wife and his daughter, the drug cartel leader is trying to reconcile their relationship. Mm -hmm. it, it's outrageous. Uh, you brought up being John Malkovich as kind of like a great meta movie. Yeah. And, well, like, yeah. Well, I don't know about great, but it, it was a meta movie. Like, and John Malkovich is one of those actors that, mm -hmm. I mean, everything he's in is, uh, I will say, unique. Yeah. Right. I, I don't think I've ever seen him repeat any characters unless it was a sequel like Red, you know? Right. But uh, if you do, there's that, there's like JCVD. So it's it's been done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. JCVD, because it, it's pretty much like Jean Claude was playing a version of himself. And yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's definitely been done. Yeah. It's been done. So the only thing that makes me extremely excited about this is because it's Nick Cage. Like, I, and he's not like a dirty word, I don't think, in mm -hmm. Hollywood. But I mm -hmm. think that whenever you recruit Nick Cage for a movie, you know what you're getting yeah which is funny i mean obviously it's kind of it's almost uh you know ironic at this point but like you it's a it's a very known quantity that you are getting someone who is unstable yeah right so uh i imagine that he's got people that he has worked with in the past and that those are the conduit by which you know, he is actually accessed as an actor because I couldn't imagine coming in clean mm -hmm. and trying to decode his brain. Mm -hmm. um, I, it will be a very interesting thing to watch, especially if he gets the kind of producer credits that I think he needs to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, the one thing I read is that they're 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 kind of basing it off of the 90s version of himself from like Face Off and Gone in 60 Seconds. And I feel like you could pull from both of those because he was pretty insane in Face Off. I mean, he's been insane in, you know, like, uh, I think it was called The Vampire's Kiss and, you know, yep. like all kinds of different films in the 80s and stuff. But if you're focusing on the 90s, you know, yeah, maybe you can throw in Con Air and maybe The Rock or something, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I could see him having some fun with it. But I think the reason he's wanting to, to you know, get in talks and pull the trigger on this is that, he read the script and and they wanted to make sure that to let him know that this is coming of a of a place that you know like they respect him and it's not to make fun of him, um, but that doesn't mean he's not going to have fun with it. And you know if they're going to do some sort of de aging process, I would only hope that they do something kind of like what the Irishman uh, has done, and so that way he can pretty much like play himself and then they just digitally you know go from there from what he has on his face. But yeah, that'll be uh, 
that'll be, I'm looking forward to this if it does happen. Uh, again, he's only in talks, but you know, um, but I don't see him backing out of something like this. This sounds like this would be a really good move for him as far as his career. I agree. And then also the fact that you can't make this Nicolas Cage movie without a Nicolas Cage. Like, right. He is uh, a singular person. There is not a lot of people out there like him. So, I yeah. mean, like to say that you would, I, I could see maybe somebody trying to do this with a shock of all shocks, like a John Travolta mm-hmm. kind of thing. But um, even John Travolta, I don't think has the self-awareness that Nick Cage does. Well, perhaps lack of self-awareness. I mean, he thinks that he's a pretty amazing guy. Yeah. Or maybe you could do Nick Nolte. (laughs) Nick Nolte. (laughs) Speaking of which, Nick Nolte, Mm -hmm. I believe, is in The Mandalorian. That is correct. And that is next on our list. And that is next on our list. I will say Nick Nolte was a great surprise, and the Muppet that he was playing literally looks like Nick Nolte, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. And it, it, the Muppet uh, for Quill, who Nick Nolte voices, right? And perhaps they do prosthetics on his face to, to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, that alien actually looks like Nick Nolte's mugshot. Yeah. I, I have spoken. I have spoken. <laughs> That was fun. That, yeah. This, this whole show is fun. Is that fair? Yeah. So I want to hear your thoughts on Mandalorian. Like production My, design, um, acting, uh, um, directing, everything. So um, John Favreau is the creator mm-hmm. and sometimes director yeah. of this show. Um, it is a great callback to which sounds so funny like when's the last time that you saw the original iron man right like long time john favreau directing action is not super common yeah right uh these days anyway Mm -hmm. and so to watch him uh take everything he's learned and, and this is just a snapshot right from iron man through like things like chef and stuff like that right everything that he's actually learned through his filmmaking and everything and seeing it mature the way that it has, it makes me appreciate the product a lot more. And and I I say that in a way that it seems like he's actually taken a lot of the character development stuff that he really started to learn uh, early on in his career, because some of the stuff that he made early on while it was fun, wasn't necessarily what I would call like a very good movie. Yeah. Right. And then as you move on, you really get to see his entire take on stuff really uh, flesh out. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a, if nothing else, it's a great uh, example of John Favreau's filmmaking so far all of the information that he's gathered over time being put into a single series. Um, I like everything uh, that I've seen so far. The opening shots uh, were very good. Yeah. The um, like a couple things are very notable about this. One of those is Pedro Pascal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult 
to get someone who is actually a character actor to act through thick layers of makeup. Yeah. Right. Uh, in general, like some people become famous because of it, like Ron Perlman. Mm-hmm. And it's even more difficult to convey emotion or uh, a sense of what the character is actually feeling or thinking through physical actions mm-hmm. because you've got a helmet on your entire time. Right. And I read a review on this and they, they uh, I can't remember if it was New York Times or whatever, but they kind of brought up the fact that Star Wars has always done a good job of using sound and uh, physical, like physicality to express what characters are thinking, like mm-hmm. R2-D2's beeps. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't surprise me that with that kind of pedigree, they were able to get uh, a character like the Mandalorian mm-hmm. to quote unquote emote. Right. But I, I saw myself and this is partially because of the score, right. Yeah. And partially because of the cinematography, but I was finding myself thinking that I was sympathizing, you know, or that I, that I was actually like understanding the emotions that the Mandalorian was putting out, even though I never got to see his face. And that, that in itself is a filmmaking feat. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they do a good job of keeping one foot in the past with some of the, you know, like crappy, like wipe editing, you know, that they'd have to do from scene to scene and that kind of thing. Like it was very Star Warsy kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, like the transitions, I mean, um, they don't overuse it or anything. In fact, I think they use it less than every every other Star Wars that's out there. I think it's like once, maybe an episode, because I I could be wrong because I just watched it last night. But the uh, th- they have some good quick camera work in this that keeps the pace up. Whereas I think in a lot of other Star Wars films and TV, uh, they lacked that kind of perspective shifts and uh the the really good um scene creation and stuff like that so uh and it sounds kind of dumb but something that i would actually compare it to is like the clone wars tv series Mm -hmm. in its its ability to be methodical when it needs to be and then frantic when it needs to be and it doesn't like one pace doesn't muddle the other one up right like it's it's told in a way that keeps you interested without just dragging the whole film down. Like Mm -hmm. it's not like a very casual conversation. You're doing smash cuts from face to face, you know? Um, I appreciate that. I think the editing went very well in this. Um, There's one beef that I have that really takes me out of the entire show. What's that? The actual footage of the and this is gonna be so stupid but the footage of the spacecraft right like like taking off or landing Mm -hmm. right i appreciate all of the camera work that i've seen in this show so far Mm -hmm. to the point where i can actually feel kind of some of the notes of what they're trying to bring in from like of course spaghetti western stuff everybody's talked about that that's not new but the thing that I can't stand is that they've invested so much mental effort into getting the right shot at the right time. And you can tell this whole thing is pretty painstaking, right? Like it's, it's, they love their work. 
yeah. everybody that's involved in this gives a shit, which is mm-hmm. something that's been missing from Star Wars for a while. Yeah. The scenes where you have ships taking off and landing are, uh, by contrast, maybe the most amateurish shots of the entire show. Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of look mediocre. That it, it just there's nothing going on there. I can convey to you the landing of a spacecraft by everything from uh, shifting perspective to showing the actual um, kind of like reverberations throughout the ship hole when you're quote unquote landing, yep. you know, like you do a little shaky cam action. Um, you can watch someone walk, you know, from like a roadie camera's perspective down a ramp. Um, you can do so much with that. And instead what they've done is they they've taken this great camera work and then they spliced in just a picture of a ship landing. Yeah. And I was like, that is 1990s sci-fi level garbage. Yeah. Right. Like that you have to show the ship landing or taking off every single time just to break up the moment. And the entire show is told from like this very tight perspective around the Mandalorian. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the camera is always around the central protagonist mm-hmm. and it's always giving you perspective shots and things like that without giving you like a first person view. Right. Yeah. So you're always kind of getting the temperature of the room that he walks into. You're getting the actual uh, feeling of um, the respect that he's garnering from other characters or fear or whatever. Like everything is really tight on this character. Yeah. And then you just show like basically a CGI model landing. Mm-hmm. are taking off and and that bothers me um because it should have never happened that's like in like to me that's almost like um if you go back and you're on the editing room floor and somebody says well we don't know where he is now you know yeah we need to we need to splice in a shot of him landing on the planet right it's like intern level shit yeah like i, I just i don't i don't understand it because this whole time perspectively you are engrossed in in kind of like what his next action will be and and everything is told very well and then you're just like completely spliced out of it for two frames because a ship is landing or taking off Mm -hmm. so anyway that's that's something that that i noticed that i thought like amidst all the acting and the great camera work uh and i am not not a head, head over heels star wars guy yeah all right. I mean, like, um, I, you know, you'll play like the, oh, you Star Trek or Star Wars guy game mm-hmm. with a bunch of nerds that you, you got in a room. You know, my answer will probably be Star Trek every time. Yeah. But I will say that from a appreciation for film and for someone who can't get enough kind of spaghetti Western-esque kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is a love letter to that. This is not a shot for shot remake you know, and, and they do a good job of being influenced by it. But I would say it's a lot more like a modern Western, like a John Hillcoat Western. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you, there, the problem with um, some spaghetti Westerns is there is not a lot of character development, right? Mm-hmm. The the story is a character and, and it is driven uh, very you know, either quickly or slowly, or it's evenly paced throughout. 
right? And you're, what you're learning is about the world that they're in and the rules that they have to operate by. And if you are challenging those rules or if you abide by those rules, and that's why the good, the bad, the ugly is such an interesting thing is because, you know, everybody's an archetype and, and you, they play to that the entire time and there's not a lot of character growth. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, like a John Hillcoat Western and, and that kind of thing. And if you, if you don't know who John Hillcoat is, um, some of the times he gets pulled into some real like money suck crappy stuff, but like there are some actual really good movies out there. Like there's an Australian Western that he did that was actually pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he's not afraid to get character level uh, information and display it in ways that are more physical right or that are given to you by the environment so that your protagonist can remain quiet yeah and they do that a lot in this right like they surrounded pedro pascal with a shit ton of excellent actors yep and those actors and i don't want to take anything away from pedro but those actors are acting a lot on his behalf right to convey to you information that helps you build his character indirectly so in that way i believe it's a very much more modern western-esque kind of kind of take on it because it is very centralized around the character but he doesn't have to do a lot of exposition like i'm going into the bar now to go shoot some people you know it's it's very much like the story is told by the environment but you're also gaining knowledge about a central character and his motivations and uh and for that reason alone uh, as someone who loves Westerns, modern and classic, you know, uh, like Once Upon a Time in the West and that kind of stuff. I've dragged Sambino through that about four times. Um, you know, you've just got, you've just got a really good product. And, and, and so overall, I would, I would give it a, uh, easily a, uh, an A minus to a B plus. Yeah. Well, um, what do you, what do you think? I think, yeah, I mean, bringing up the the uh, sort of Wild West uh, spaghetti Western perspective, you know, is definitely interesting. And that's kind of how I saw that this would be from the trailer. The thing is, as the show started and, you know, you see, you know, again, we're going to have a little bit of spoilers in this. So those of you that haven't seen it, you know, you can skip ahead. Um, but uh, the 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 things that you see is, you know, there are, you know, there's a few stormtroopers left and you're like, okay, what's up with that? And I started thinking like, okay, what, what is the time frame that this is taking in? Um, yeah. cause especially by the end of the first, you see this, this old droid unit that has an assassin who is voiced by Taika Waititi, by the way. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Taika Waititi's name sounds like a star Wars name already. Yeah. So yeah, yes, I agree. But and, and that was entertaining to see him with the assassin droid, you know, and trying to go in there. And he was like, he's like, okay, going to uh, detonate now. And he's like, yep. do not detonate, you know. And he just keeps doing yep. it. <laughs> he's like, no, we're gonna figure this out, you know. And uh, then he ends up shooting him when he finds out like what it is he has to go after. But right. and Werner Herzog like makes a surprise appearance. I was like, oh shit, like this is perfect for him, yep. you know, being like the very ominous guy, and we need yep. this and. And of course, he gives them that uh, imperial credit or whatever it is. And I thought it was cool at the beginning of the second episode where it melts it down, and he uses that as like to increase his armor. Yep. And um, you know, I the one thing I, I do really like about it is that 
it's going into, okay, what is a Mandalorian? And, and the world that he comes from, which has this sort of strict honor and code, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the planet that the Predators come from a little bit, but, right. you know, just the, the honor of code of, like, being a bounty hunter and what is it. And so, you know, I looked it up because I'm like, you know, when is this taking place? Well, it takes place about, I think it was either four or nine years after the events of Return of the Jedi. Right. So the Empire has fallen, and that's why you're in sort of like a, not a dystopian, but kind of like a de facto state where everything's kind of, you're, you're evolving now because you don't have this, the, the empire being the, the order. And this is before all the events of the star Wars films, the recent, uh, the, the most recent trilogy with the first order, but you start to see where things are getting in gear and, and maybe they're trying to shift into the first order. There's still remnants of the empire, kind of like Nazi Germany, how there were still yeah. remnants and they still tried to, you know, do some things. There's and, a lot of privateering going on. I mean, these guys yeah. are, are trying to make shit happen, even though they were stormtroopers for X amount of years. Right. Yeah. So yeah, apparently it takes place like somewhere between four and nine years after the events of uh, return of the Jedi. And I'm like, okay, now that I understand that, you know, I know that, you know, Boba Fett is dead and, you know, but the, this guy basically comes from the same place that they did. And so right. what is their sort of like, what is their culture like? What is their history, you know, uh, and sort of like what, what makes him be a legend because he's so revered as a Mandalorian. I mean, you see it when he lands on the, the planet in episode two, um, and of course, you know, he, uh, he meets the Nick Nolte, you know, Muppet character. Yep. And then of course the Jawas show up, which was awesome. Yep. Uh, and they of course strip his ship and he's trying to fight them and stuff. And, and eventually he has to, you know, barter with them. And, and I thought that was really entertaining, but you know, you see at the, the end of the first episode, the, uh, I, again, it's been a while, but, uh, with star Wars, but you know, the creature that was Yoda, you see that kind of creature and it's a baby and just being a baby, it already knows how to use the force like that, which is pretty insane. Um, that you that's, know, that's the twist, right? And he's like 50 years old. And so he thinks he's about to go kill or capture an old man. And then it turns out to be because it's Yoda's species, right. right? I mean, who live forever. Right. It's yeah. He's a baby. He's 50 years old. Yeah. It, it's really crazy. So, you know, the end of that episode was like, okay, that's what this is going to be about. And so, you know, the, I, he had the option to kill it, but you know, and, and now it's like, he's learning more about it. It pretty much saves his life at the end of the second episode. And now you're, you're seeing that sort of, you know, again, this is all about character development. So somebody that is a Mandalorian being a bounty hunter, you know, yeah, he's just doing it for credits, which, you know, awesome that he's meeting with Carl Weathers, um, yep. which I saw him and I was like, Dylan, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I said that when I saw him on screen, but, uh, you know, and he still looks great. You know, he's still acting he really well and everything. And I'm glad they got him in there. But, um, you know, but it's it, it looks like now that the Mandalorian is going to be faced with, you know, morality and how does he feel about this? And maybe he didn't believe in all of this, you know, force bogus stuff and now that he sees it in action he can't explain it and you know so it's gonna be real interesting to see how the rest of the series turns out you know initially going into this with it being only you know roughly 30 to 40 minutes long per episode I was like man I don't know like how they're gonna pack all this in but you know it is pretty action-packed and um you know I, as far as like the world goes the the world building I think is really good the one complaint that I have is the music 
the music in yeah. it constantly takes me out because it's overplayed. It's played too many times in scenes where I feel like there should be no music, you know, and this, these long sweeping things, uh, yeah. you know, it's just takes me back to like nineties TV shows. Like I'm watching Stargate SG one or, you know, right. or, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Quinn medicine woman or something like that. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I just feel like the the music could be better. Um, and I feel like it doesn't match what they're trying to portray on screen. Like, you know, like I get that this is Disney plus. So again, you know, Oh boy, we got the mouse, you know? Yeah. And so with that, it, I, I guess you're trying to make this accessible to everybody, but you know, again, I, I just, I just feel like it should be raw, gritty type of, of edgy type of music to, to go with it, you know? Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. And I think that's part of kind of what, and you and I will probably differ a little bit on that because I, I think that they, the music is used a lot as a vehicle to convey certain scenarios and stuff like that. But I understand what you're talking about because they, I've got an issue not necessarily with the intro and outro music because mm -hmm. i think that the guy did a good idea i can't remember his name he's a he's a relatively new guy um but he did a good job yeah uh, the composer decent. did a good job with the intro and the outro i was like this is a memorable theme like i i actually get that and the intro and the outro very much hams up the whole western aspect of stuff sure but the uh yeah i i absolutely while, while i was uh watching it and my brain never went fully to like 90s tv mm -hmm. i know what you're talking about yeah right so like i can i absolutely respect that opinion and my my point was that i think that it might be overused right and, and especially like a little bit more airy and fairy stuff which i've always always kind of curious about but mm -hmm. i think uh, unfortunately um for the composer the actual notes, I, I say this without being a pun intent or intending a pun here, but the actual notes of a spaghetti Western carry over to the way that they have interspersed the music in, in this show, mm -hmm. right? So um, for better or worse, Right. So like a lot of the things that they're trying to do, they're trying to convey certain emotions and that kind of thing. But if you watch a spaghetti Western, uh, you're either going to like, a, like an EO, uh, Mary Cone, uh, kind of like spaghetti Western thing right. that, um, you're anything like that is going to have, it's either going to be quiet, you know, like mm -hmm. a, a more quiet movie, especially earlier stuff, but the later on, like the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing is a sweeping score. Yeah. Right? True. True. So I think that somebody probably watched the good, the bad and the ugly a little bit too much. And they were like, dude, like, this is me. Like I can do this, yeah. you know? And so they start trying to interject kind of random shit here and there. And, uh, and it's, it's probably to give you that kind of feel, even though it didn't necessarily add anything to the movie, it was just kind of like their homage to, whatever you know whatever they ins were inspired by yeah um they they really do ham up the western elements of this uh, a lot almost to their detriment um however they don't let it control the storytelling mm -hmm. um it, it gets to that point where you're close 
yeah. right? Like yeah. I, you, you're dangerously close to having it, you know, play into old tropes and stuff like that. But this, this is done, done a good job of kind of blazing its own trail so far. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if they keep with that and they don't try to make it like a bunch of, you know, archetypical characters mm -hmm. that are just, you know, useless and empty. And then they, you know, try to force the issue with the narrative by, you know, not having crazy random shit happen, then uh, I think we'll be fine. You know, it, it will be a well-paced show that will have the right amount of surprise, but will also be very well shot. And yeah, the music will be interrupting in some parts, but for the most part, if they get it right, will actually enhance the ambiance. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I'll go ahead. No, I just, uh, I, I won't know that until, you know, you know, series eight comes out or yeah. show eight comes out. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, like the, 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 the species that Yoda is, you know, with that being introduced, I feel like they have more up their sleeve in terms of, you know, whether it's, some sort of reference to Luke or, you know, I think they'll have a lot more golden nuggets throughout this. Um, but I am interested in the Mandalorian himself and you're getting to learn more. And, and I do enjoy the directorial perspective where it's from his point of view. Um, right. So I, I think it's going to be, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the season. Yeah. It's got my attention. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's going to be very good. Yep. We have time to, to talk about these, these last few things. Yeah. So we got a little bit of time here. Queeby. What is uh? What I sorry I can't I can't stand <laughs> the name of this thing. It's there's a there's a new streaming service out, which Lord knows we don't have enough of those. Um, Quibi, I think is how you say it. Q U I B I, mm -hmm. as a new service that came out. Well, it's that, coming out. It's coming uh, out. It's spring coming of out. 2020. Yeah. Right. Right. It's coming out, and and the idea is. Uh, to capture the ever shifting attention of us lowly millennials, and uh, and get ten minute or less episodes of shows that are based primarily for mobile platforms. Mm -hmm. um, I, if you had told me about this and you were asking for money from me, I would tell you to go pound sand. Yeah. However, how many people have invested in this of note? Right. I mean, like it, it's insane the amount of people who have actually. It's your who's who is like Sony, this. I believe. Um, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, let's see. Alibaba bought mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. uh, Disney. Yeah. Uh, NBC Universal. Um, they've raised one billion in funding. Yeah. So again, this is me, like old man Mountain Carl. And you come to me and you say, I can't wait to make a platform that has 10 minute or less shows. And I'm going to do effective storytelling in that amount of time. Right. And, and I would, I would say, no, you're not. Yeah. So the, the, the thing is some of these make sense, right? So like there's a, there's like a Chrissy Teigen uh, vehicle on here called Chrissy's court, which apparently she's like a small claims court judge, which I think is uh maybe the most confusing uh and simple you know thing out there uh so if you think about it when is the last time that you saw like the people's court or judge judy right like it was a long time ago long time ago yeah so like but you you fit in three different small claims cases like mm -hmm. in very bite-sized stuff in 30 minutes that it's on mm -hmm. right so it's not hard for me to believe 
Yeah, and it's like 20 minutes with commercials or whatever. Yeah. So it, it doesn't, it's not very hard for me to believe that you can get a single case, you know, actually to transpire in the 10 minutes or less run that you will have for an episode. Unless right? it's just It'll, a big parody, you know? Yeah, that, that too. But in general, that doesn't surprise me as far as a, an actual setup for a show and a format that you can fit into a bite-sized chunk, right? Right. That's right. ADD enough. The thing that I don't understand and something that we'll probably have to figure out here, and I will not, I will not be getting this service. Um, even though it's got uh, a show on here that I think we're all very interested in and, and it's going to be a new adaptation of the fugitive. Mm-hmm. Right. And we may have like, briefly talked about this before but tell tell everybody who is actually in this adaptation of the fugitive and why they should care yeah so the adaptation um is going to be uh Kiefer sutherland has signed on to play the agent that is tracking the fugitive himself uh and of course you know i i believe there was another future remake that was done um years ago and so of course this is going to be like an adaptation from um, the original Fugitive, so it's not going to be exactly beat for beat the same story, but it's taking place modern day, and it's going to be in the confines of social media where it's kind of like guilty first, ask questions later. Um, right. And so that's going to be interesting. And so basically this guy, uh, I think there was supposed to be like a, a terrorist attack or something that happened in L.A., and yeah, go figure. kind of sounds a little bit like Jack Bauer in 24, but right. uh, so this guy is kind of like wrongly, you know, being being painted as you know he's the guy who did it and of course everybody's after him and so um the uh guy that uh basically plays the the dude that's on the run is uh played by the same guy that was in uh let me take a look real quick logan right that's right yeah so he was he was the guy that was tracking Logan. He's been in a lot of other films too. Um, his name's not coming to mind right now, but Boyd Holbrook. Yeah, Boyd Holbrook. So, yeah, he's so Kiefer's basically going to be on the case, running after him, kind of probably like Jack Bauer mode. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, and he'll be going after him, and you know, so it'll be it'll be interesting. Uh, I think the star power in this is is good. It just I don't know. It depends on who's directing it, and. Um, you know, as far as this, this being one of the feature TV series for Quibi, I just don't see it being a 10 minute long episode per episode. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for me, it's hard to digest. Yeah. I mean, like the original fugitive. Yeah. It, it took place in, in like a 90 minute, you know, like safe for VHS yeah. runtime. Right. And that was fine because they did effective storytelling that way. But if, I mean, again, that was actually adapted from a TV show early on as well, but they, uh, they did a very good job in the fugitive, you know, with Tommy Lee Jones and, mm-hmm. um, Oh, Oh God. Um, uh, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford. Yeah. Wow. Another stroke. So, <laughs> um, so, I mean, this, that was a, a, uh, a huge important movie for the time, right? Like it was a, it was a huge, release it was a really big vehicle for those yeah, two it was a big hit. yeah um it's strange to me I, i'd rather they do this mm-hmm. than do a rehash or a reboot of that movie is that fair yeah that's fair and i think doing a tv series you can flesh out more with character development than you can in like a tour i'm gonna bet 
that that this series is going to be each episode is going to be at least be 30 minutes long. There's no way you can do 10 minutes. I think, I think the whole 10 minute concept is only on certain shows like reality based shows, but this kind of stuff, I mean, you got to do a hard stop. Yeah. I mean, like if you've got, Oh man, I I will, I will be curious to see how they do it. Is it going to be like the dollar general store where like most of everything is a dollar, but sometimes you have stuff that's like $5, God forbid. You yeah. have uh, Quibi, which is mostly your 10-minute or less shows, but then now you've got like this one quote-unquote hit show or killer app or whatever they've got that is going to be a you know, 30-minute show. Right. So I'm, I'm not really sure. But uh, anyway, it's hard. We're obviously huge fans of Keith or Su- Kiefer Sutherland mm-hmm. here at the show, and uh, and I will be very curious as to how this all pans out for him. Um, yeah, anyway, Queeby is a thing. People will buy it. Um, it's backed by a shit ton of talent or people will treat it like it's the next HD DVD and it will die a horrible death. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see how it goes though. There's a lot invested in it. So, uh, and two, like one of the other series we looked at, uh, Steven Spielberg has like this dark after hours type of show where it's going to be kind of like a, who's afraid of the dark type of thing. And, you know, for all those uh, millennials out there who probably are too young to uh, even know, Spielberg had a miniseries back in the day, which Kiefer Sutherland actually starred in, coincidentally. That's um, right. That was uh, Amazing Stories. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amazing Stories was was a thing. And then uh, another thing that we've, uh, on one of the YouTube channels that, that Be Easy and I watched is uh, Cinemassacre, and they recently talked about the the actual Crypt Keeper movies that oh, were yeah. out there and stuff like that. I thought, that, I mean, like, obviously, Crypt Keeper's kind of yeah. uh, ridiculous. I mean, but it's like, um, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's good that, they bring it, that stuff back. Yeah, I like that. I like any of that stuff. Uh, I know that um, Shudder is yep. going to do kind of their own thing here pretty soon. So, well, it, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it. I'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Um it's going to be very difficult for me to say, yes, I can't wait to download Quibi and start watching. Right. So, yeah. Uh, also that name is horrible. <laughs> um, Quibi is like the sound I make after I eat too many beans. Quibi. So Quibi. <laughs> um, I stuck, I snuck the last, uh, I snuck this last thing in on you. Are you, are you, are you okay with that? This yeah, last topic. Yeah. I, I go for I it. I have to, I have to mention, especially after you, uh, you posted the the Conan O'Brien clip where yeah. they did the Sonic Sonic the Hedgehog redesign. Uh, for those of you guys who haven't seen the Conan O'Brien clip, it's uh, they, they were joking about the redesign of Sonic, and so they're like, "Hey kids, it's me, Sonic." And it was just like a, it was a guy in a mascot costume, which had a very actual convincing like mouth movement and everything, and uh, it also had a giant like tube sock long cock. <laughs> that was like hanging off of this this guy and it was just like it, it was like blurred out and everything for tv obviously but you know he it was like what do you think about my new you know my new look and everything and it's just like him bouncing around and making like your know, ring sounds and everything but he's just got this like giant like knob hanging off of him um anyway it was a funny bit uh you should definitely go check it out but the uh, the thing that i actually want to talk about is the fact that they absolutely uh, took the desecrated 
sonic image like scorched earth style just <laughs> redid it from bottom to top yeah and uh it is actually acceptable now yeah it, it looks I, a lot I, more I, like the video game character yeah yeah which you know to, to me i mean like if you're trying to go for a realistic hedgehog i've got really bad news for you you're not going to get there with a sonic like lookalike right in any case right you know yeah. And, and I, I do hope, as, as bad as this movie will be, um, I really hope that there is a moment where they're like, like oh, like, what do hedgehogs look like on your planet? And then, like, <laughs> they show them, like, exactly what they look like. Because it is, Sonic is many things. He's not a hedgehog. I think he's correctly identified as an alien in uh, in the actual trailer itself. Yeah. But he is, uh, he, he looks acceptable now. There were actually Sonic the Hedgehog masks that were for sale for Halloween <laughs> on amazon and uh i want to see j mac get one of those oh i looked for them because yeah. they like they got a they got national attention right because oh, wow. they were based off of the original you know design like the the movie design yeah the terrifying right right and uh and i looked for them because i was like i can't be very expensive and i thought it'd be a really funny bit to wear that to your halloween party and uh it turns out that they were like fifty dollars a mask wow I'm, I'm i'm telling you that i'm not afraid to spend money i yeah. think that's been wildly apparent throughout my life yeah except for uh if you're trying to get me to spend fifty dollars on a gag that will likely be uncomfortable smelly and only go over for about five minutes it's not worth it yeah and two it's like how how many times are you gonna wear it so yeah exactly yeah i mean i, I won't want to look at it it's terrifying yeah you know it's it's just it's grotesque so the original sonic uh design and everything was pretty awful i think everybody can agree with that and uh the the redesign like you said is very very close to the actual co- you know, like or i'm sorry not comic book the video game character that we know and love mm-hmm. um although i maintain that sonic as a whole is a very overrated game yeah yeah so um <laughs> which i will likely get hate mail and oh, maybe sure. run, run over for saying that but uh i don't care if michael jackson did the music or not that <laughs> it it was it was just an okay game yeah um but yeah i think that they actually did a really good job and the and the memes that will come from this are endless oh um, yeah jim carrey still looks like he's insane because he is yep um and that's about it. I think uh, I think I think we've all got a pretty good feel for this movie already. And uh, James Marsden is by far the the only thing grounding this movie in reality. Yeah, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. Well, this has been a, another fun episode. Uh, I think we've talked about a whole gambit of things today, but that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, again, want to thank you for joining me, Carl. Uh, thank you to all our listeners out there. Again, you can find us on social media. Uh, that is on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us at Sensibly Loud. If you look for us on Facebook, you can find us at Sensibly Loud Media. Uh, but again, thank you guys for listening, and stay tuned for next episode of Sensibly Loud Radio.